0: Welcome to Free Food for Thought, a student run, student focused podcast here to feed your curiosity. I'm Mel. I'm Brynn. And today we're here with Dr. Catherine Matthews, the chief scientist for Oceana, the largest international organization dedicated to protecting the world's oceans. Throughout her career in research and advocacy, Dr. Matthews has worked in environments ranging from the Arctic ice caps to Capitol Hill, international treaty negotiations, and the waters of the Eastern Tropical Pacific. She has also worked and collaborated with the International Seafood Sustainability Foundation and Pew Charitable Trusts, along with the Society for Conservation Biology's Board of Governors, where she has been the Marine Section's Board of Directors as president from 2017 to 2019. So Katie, we've read that one of your roles at Oceana involves tracking emerging issues, and we wanted to ask if you could speak to us about a few issues relating to oceans that you don't think are receiving significant coverage right now.
1: Oh, well, it's a tough situation because Everybody is talking about climate change. That is not an emerging issue. That's a thing that we've known about for a while. Uh, but understanding how climate change is affecting the oceans. And I think more interestingly, how the oceans are can be more than just a victim of climate change, but can be a solution. So that solution space uh, around shifting diets around uh, renewable energy from the ocean, uh, reducing shipping emissions. There are a lot of things out there that I think are really interesting in terms of what the oceans can do for us, not just what we are doing to the oceans.
0: And so one of the things about Oceana I found particularly interesting was that linking of your messaging to um, not just why the environment matters as a whole, but how um, our food sources are super affected by um, how sustainable our oceans are and how clean and preserved they are. And so could you kind of speak about using maybe a more direct motivation or an immediate danger to humans as a way to get people to care about your issue?
1: Yeah, it's tough because a lot of people, if you're not – a scuba diver if you're not already a fisherman it can be hard to feel connected to something that maybe you see um as just this sort of um featureless blue you know ocean water surface and so better understanding things around um uh let's use uh, seafood traceability for an example that's that. Doesn't sound particularly interesting, but there's a lot of interest in understanding where your food comes from. There's this whole like eating locally movement, understanding the carbon footprint of your food, um, uh, locavore as a as. As, as a word in use is relatively new. And there is a version of that in fisheries, which is to say, do you know where your fish has come from? Who's caught it? Uh, whether or not uh, there was slave labor involved or uh, what country was caught in? What sort of gear was used? Uh, was it destructive? Was it sustainable? Um, all of those questions, I think, are really um, interesting and maybe more personally motivating to somebody than, uh, you know, trying to explain... Um, uh, trying to explain, like, complex fisheries management policy, which seems a little bit more dry and boring. But sort of understand, knowing where your food comes from and, 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 and that what you order at the sushi restaurant is, in fact, what shows up on your plate,
2: um, those things maybe make a little bit more immediate um, sense to people. Absolutely. So having worked in roles with a more pure research focus and others involving policy and advocacy work, like mm-hmm. in D.C., Um, Where do you feel that you've had the strongest impact and how would you recommend that young people interested in the environment or the oceans um, find the best role for them?
1: Well, I definitely think it depends on the person. Uh, so there are, are plenty of amazing researchers out there that are doing absolutely what they need to be doing in the lab or out in the field. And it just felt for me that I was better at the the sort of science policy interface, that I was better at, at doing the translating, at sort of enabling other scientists to do their job better or to give their work more voice and more amplification. So um, I started... Um, uh, a postdoctoral research position after I finished my PhD where I was working in a clean lab it kind of looked like a movie set where it was all like white and hushed tums of machines and I wore the Tyvek suit and the shower cap and the booties and I was all by myself and I was pipetting things and I was turning knobs on machines and it was all like very complicated and very interesting um, but it At the end of the day, I was feeling a little bit stir crazy and I wanted to be more connected to to um, how science was influencing society, how policy was influencing science, um, how to take all of the work that I knew was happening inside academia and inside research institutions and make sure that it got to the people that actually we're going to be able to do something with that information. And so that's how I ended up working in science policy. Um, I spent a year working uh, on Capitol Hill for then-representative Ed Markey, which was an amazing and eye-opening experience. Um, I happened to be working for him during the BP oil spill, uh, which was uh, terrifying but also really exciting. Um, I got to do things like facilitate the shipping of... Uh, oil samples from the Gulf of Mexico to the laboratories that were then creating a standardized methodology that could be used by all the other laboratories out there so that everybody was working from the same playbook as they were trying to understand what was happening uh, in the Gulf of Mexico during the oil spill. So that kind of connection piece was really exciting to me and um, I, I guess where my skills were better suited.
0: And since you found yourself working um, at that point where you're interfacing between scientists and policymakers and the public, have you kind of drawn on your background as someone who grew up in D.C.? Were there a lot of political dynamics that you were steeped in that have informed the way you approach kind of Uh, that science politics mix now?
1: I think it's funny because when I left D.C. and I graduated from high school, I moved away and I was like, peace out, I'm never coming back here again. And I majored in geology, and I thought I was going to be wearing uh, hiking boots and flannel shirts and carrying a rock hammer and, you know, walking around the hills of Montana. Uh, And so it really was not, uh, it was not in my plan to come back and and move to D.C. and work in science policy. But um, after... Uh, getting an undergraduate degree in geology, and I did a master's degree working um, on pesticide deposition in the Arctic, and then I was working on climate change and corals uh, for my PhD. Uh, I sort of came around to the fact that, like, actually, all of the things that I was studying as a scientist were things that, that were the result of human activity. It was climate change. It was pesticides. Uh, even for my postdoctoral work, I was looking at the contamination of uranium in the environment. So all of those things were still were, were human-driven. And I was like, well, I guess if I'm going to be working at the place where the rubber is meeting the road uh, in terms of these these sort of decisions and challenges, then I, I, I guess maybe I should move back to D.C. So I ended up back in D.C., somewhat to my surprise, to my mother's delight. But.
2: <laughs> Full circle. Yeah. Um, so, given that you're doing this noble work in what many would consider to be a really depressing time, um, how do you stay motivated, how do you stay optimistic and continue to recommit yourself to making small progress on what seems to be an insurmountable issue?
1: That's a good question and something that I um, that I think about a lot. I, um, I get up and I go to work every day and sometimes it's sort of boring. Um, and can be drudgery. It can be frustrating uh, when things don't go your way, knowing how long people have worked on something, how hard people have worked on something. But I think that the alternative is worse. Uh, The alternative is not working on those things and not waking up every day and and at least trying to do something. Um, And I think I would come home at the end of those days and feel frustrated with, you know, what have I done with myself? And so... uh, I think about it that way. Um, And so I get home at the end of the day and, you know, like watch some Netflix and be like, it's cool. Like I, you know, I I, I tried my best today and this is, you know, you know, this is this is. This is better than the alternative. Um, And, you know, in spite of some challenging situations that we have in uh, a lot of the countries where we work, not just the United States, but places like the Philippines and Brazil and Peru, um, we still manage to succeed in some things. And it's because there's... There's plenty of opportunity out there at, say, the state or province level versus the the federal level, or working on issues that are not really partisan and they're um, they're around livelihoods and sustainable economies, and these are all things where you can usually find some kind of, of common ground, and uh, and so you take the wins where you can and you store all of that good energy away for the days when you know when you lose. Mm-hmm.
0: Hearing you mention uh, those different countries, and just even reading about all the places you've worked so far, it it's so interesting to think about focusing on one topic that affects so many different countries and really what one country does. It's an ocean, it moves, it affects a lot of other people too. How have you kind of navigated that cultural or um, kind of international aspect of doing oceans work? And I'm curious, are there any countries that have surprised you, maybe if they're landlocked or something, to being particularly cooperative or excited about um, doing ocean preservation work?
1: Well, so to answer the first part of your question, um, different countries definitely have different political contexts, different cultural contexts. They have different relationships to civil society. So um, one of the things that Oceania... Um, that It's part of our DNA is that though we are centrally managed with an international headquarters in Washington, D.C., uh, every country office is staffed and led by someone from that country. We don't send somebody from Washington, D.C. to go sell, tell someone in the Philippines what to do. Um, and I think it's really important that there is sort of cultural understanding and sensitivity Um, and, and, and it's absolutely necessary to success, to, to make, um, strategic plans that, that, you know, are going to work in the cultural context that you're in and political context that you're in. Um, so, so that's certainly one aspect of, of how we approach things. And your second question, like surprise, surprising countries. Um, I actually think a country that I was most surprised by when I came to Oceano, which was, uh, not quite four years ago, um, was Canada. Because hmm. I thought that Canada was probably like doing better than the United States like it's it's Canada right like they've, <laughs> they've got their they've got their stuff sorted right um, but it turns out that they had a really antiquated uh, fisheries law it was one of the oldest laws in the country and um, uh, which makes sense uh, Canada's been a fishing country for a very long time it makes sense that one of their earliest laws was a was a fisheries law um, but By, you know, uh, the 21st century, it had become somewhat outdated. And I was shocked when I arrived at Oceana to find out that um, my colleagues in Oceana Canada were still trying to do some fundamental things like make it against the law to purposefully overexploit a fishery. Like it was that was okay. that you were allowed to do that, which is not the case in the United States. In the United States, um, you cannot legally overfish Uh, a fishery. And if something is overexploited, you must make a plan to rebuild it. So that was something that Canada didn't have. And that also meant that if the fisheries minister, which had sole discretion to set limits on things, just came up with a number, there was no legal recourse, really, to try to... uh changes mind. Uh in the United States you can sue the government when it doesn't follow its own laws, but in Canada the law was so weak you you had no stand There was nothing to sue mm-hmm. on. Uh so uh the good news is that um Canada recently updated its fisheries law this summer. It was a big success and super
2: exciting. Um and uh and so yay progress. Wow, that's awesome. So Given success in past projects, if you yourself had a donor provided you with $100 million, you can do any type of project, what would you do to have the greatest conservation impact on our oceans? Oh, my goodness. Um, (sighs) This is
1: such a good question, and it's so hard to answer. Uh, (laughs) It's an embarrassment of riches. Uh, So I think um, there's probably a couple of things. One is, although it is not sexy, uh, implementing straightforward and very reasonable fisheries management is something that we know what to do. We have the recipe for it, and it's just a question of implementation. And there are so many countries in the world where fisheries are incredibly important to them. Lots of countries, um, particularly in the tropics, uh, uh, rely – rely on fisheries for for livelihoods and food security. And it's those same countries that are going to be most negatively impacted by climate change. So if they don't have their house in order, if there isn't good fisheries management in place, then they are going to be um, in even more dire straits uh, when <laughs> the oceans start becoming even more warm. And the ability of those oceans to actually um, be productive is decreased. Um uh, if you're not already set up for success, it's going to be really hard to recover. And so you're looking at a lot of countries that are going to be facing some serious situations with respect to nutrition and food security and livelihoods if they don't get their house in order. And it's not as sexy as making like a super giant MPA, eh, largest park in the world, you know, something like that. Like those things are really good and important, but people are already doing them. Um, I think that this is the hard like yeoman's work Of just getting, you know, generating political will, putting resources into place, setting straightforward, science-based quotas for fisheries, all of that sort of thing, um, is is where I would put
0: my money. Mm -hmm. So you say that that policy might not be the sexiest, and it seems like a lot of the work in oceans is. Um, complicated and maybe hard for people to digest. So outside of traditional means of mainstream news and um, academic research, mm-hmm. what have you found to be the most powerful ways that environmental experts have engaged the public? And are there maybe any artists or public exhibitions that you would thought about collaborating with or would be really excited to do that if it were a possibility?
1: Oh my gosh, I don't know about... Artists and public exhibitions, but one of my most favorite outreach tools, um, and uh, I wish maybe some of my $100 million I would use for this, <laughs> is the um, uh, NOAA has this um, research vessel, the Okeanos, um, and, uh, and the EV Nautilus is another one. These are um, uh, research vessels that have ROVs that go down to the seafloor and they live stream mm. what they see. And it is – it can be sometimes, like, a lot of, like, putt-putt-putting along, like, the very, very, very deep sea floor, looking at, like, maybe a lot of mud and, like, an occasional fish that swim fast, But every so often you see something amazing. Mm -hmm. And, in fact, just today the Nautilus found a whale fall. Um, It was zooming around, I think, a seamount. And it came across a whale, dead whale, to fall into the bottom of the seafloor where there is not so much to eat. So when a giant, like, plate of food shows up on your doorstep, you know, everybody and their brother gathers around the whale and – Eats it, and then you're left with like this amazing, like perfectly articulated whale skeleton. Um, but anyway, so they came across this whale, and there were there were all kinds of like fish, octopus. I mean, there were like crazy, crazy amount of of critters. It was a party, and um, and you kind of get to see that like even in like the deepest depths of places that we've never seen like we know less about the seafloor than we do about the surface of the moon right um that there's still all these like sort of amazing things happening down there that we don't even know about and uh and so i think sort of having these live streams like getting beamed into somebody's desk like you know they've got it open at work and then all of a sudden they hear all of these scientists like freaking out <coughs> because they come over a whale fall um can be really exciting um, and engage people in a way that they might not have otherwise thought of, or the sad flip side is that you're zooming along the seafloor and you see like a Coke can or something, <laughs> and you're like, oh wow, so or a plastic bag
2: or something like that, which you do see. So, yeah. so on a personal level, what can we as individuals do, you know, to prevent that Coke can from messing up the live stream and kind of just generally to help the health of our oceans?
1: Uh, Well, on the pollution issue, uh, specifically, um, there are a lot of people working on ocean plastics in different ways. Um, There are people that are working on cleanups. There are people working on trying to increase recycling. Um, At Oceana, our position is that if your tub is overflowing, you don't grab a mop, you turn off the tap. Um, And... And we think turning the tap off is reducing the production of plastic, especially single-use plastic. And unless we do that, we're not ever really going to solve the problem. Um, We're not going to solve the problem by cleaning things up, and we're not going to recycle our way out of the problem. And so I think... Um, as individuals making plastic-free choices, demanding plastic-free choices as consumers, uh, you have you have the right to ask for plastic-free options in supermarkets, or you know when you go to a hotel and they've got those little like plastic shampoo bottles like you don't you don't need to have those there's options that don't have to involve single-use plastic so that's one thing that you can do as an individual Um, certainly if you're interested in a variety of other ocean policy things you can go to oceana.org and they have all of these different things that we're working on so for example in california um, we're hopefully about to finalize some regulations to protect the seafloor along the west coast of the united states from bottom trawling and so those are regulations where there's like open comment period and there's opportunities for regulation people to weigh in um, and you send your comments to Noah and let them know that you think that destructive bottom trawling, which is like clear cutting the seafloor, is maybe not the way to go. So um, there's opportunities like that too.
0: Mm -hmm. And we're running out of time, but we'd love to ask you one more question. Usually we close with asking our guests about their personal definition of success But in your case, we'd love to know how you gauge success in your field of work. So are there specific goals you have for yourself, your organization, or the field as a whole as you make your way through your career?
1: So I can answer the organization question relatively easily. Um, So Oceana is a campaign-based organization. We run campaigns. There are other NGOs out there. They, They do projects or they run initiatives or they do education and capacity building. So we run campaigns. And what that means is that we are focused on finding – all of our campaigns are, are encapsulated in a, usually a single sentence, the goal. Uh, we want X decision maker to enact Y policy by Z date. Every single one. And we either win or lose. And maybe we lose – Uh, because the decision-maker lost an election and all of the priorities of the country changed. Or we lost because um, uh, we didn't get something passed through Congress, which is not an uncommon thing these days. Mm -hmm. Um, And then we might amend our goal and we might try a different tact. Or we might decide, you know what, this isn't going to happen. We're going to pick something else that we think we're going to have maybe a better better chance of being successful at. Um, So if we are winning our campaigns we are meeting our goals and um that is actually provides very nice clarity when you work in a really messy space it is sometimes really nice to know like are we winning or losing are we hitting our milestones are we making our way towards a towards a campaign victory or are we not making any progress so and these are things that we report to our board of directors three times a year um, everybody has you know sort of knows what they have to do and knows what victory looks like and um, that's that's some nice clarity in an otherwise very murky space.
0: Great. Well, thank you so much for coming to talk with us and to all of our listeners, remember to stay hungry.